Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Rise Radio and 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, the true owners, caretakers and custodians on the land that we're broadcasting on. We pay our respects to elders past and present, and we recognise the ongoing struggle for Aboriginal people for land, justice and freedom. We want the stats, sadistics, statistics, keep the shit abstract. Pestilence, treachery, clocks and daggers. When I'm talking arms length, I'm talking knuckle draggers. Displeased hashtags, strange diseases. If it bleeds, it leads and leaves you disbelieve on what else could go wrong. My black swans got fleas. I got a nasty case to give a fuck with fleas. I oh, give a fuck for tea. Face false flags, fires and famine, unicorns, uniforms, water cannons, everybody's going nuts. The drugs are on drugs. Somebody does. Yeah, but nobody does. Nazis hate pinkos, hate maggots in the park. When they kill them, another, you can tell them apart. One side's gone crazy about the way you look, and the other side does have a look. Paper jungle, but you can wear shoes like an up loser, like the heretics do. Trade your guilt trip in for a holiday from the attrition that is wishing it's a permanent state. War made the state, the state made war. What's up on the water that I can't anymore? I'm gonna fuck the tea. I give a f f fuck for tea. <laughs> Welcome everybody to Uprise Radio uh, for another episode. And I think, well, probably two things is that I assume most of our listeners would have seen the IPCC report that came out on the 8th of August. And our guest uh, today on the show is Pam Walker, who probably doesn't need an introduction to most listeners on 3CR, but I'm going to give him one anyway. So as I said, the IPCC report was released on the 8th of August, and in the midst of a world still coming to terms with the global health pandemic, many of the nation states that are unable to handle the current pandemic are also the very same who have dragged the world behind on climate action. The report and the reporting of the report comes from a starting point of what the world would look like if action was taken today to pull back to net zero emissions. But that's clearly not happening, even if some progress has been made in recent times with the US and China. It's a stark warning of the global terror that awaits, even if significant action is taken, but not taken in time. The COVID-19 pandemic is a serious health crisis that is impacting capitalism in a way not seen since the world wars. But it will pale into comparison to what life would look like without serious changes on how the climate is viewed and cared for. We know big actions are needed, particularly in Australia, with a government who won't hold the hose to put out fires and an opposition with almost no climate policy. 
But one organization that's been at the forefront of action on climate for many years is Friends of the Earth. Joining us on the show is a media spokesperson for FO and someone who does hold the hose, Cam Walker. Hello, how are you? Thanks so much for joining us, Cam. And yes, you do hold the hose out there, um, Castle Maine, and have been a part of, you know, pretty horrendous bushfire season last year. I wonder if um, before we get into the report itself, and, you know, I know you're probably the most knowledgeable person I can think of to talk about some of the impacts around, you know, our ecosystems and what it means, some of the things detailed in the report. But how did, you know, even for, for all of your, you know, expertise and knowledge of years of climate activism, how did it feel being a part of, uh, um, you know, the bushfires last season and, and being on the front line of that? You know, it was actually a really good thing. It seems like a strange thing to say, but, um, you know, as, as you know, I've spent a lot of time working on climate campaigning and environmental campaigning and a lot of the places that I love, I see them burning more and more frequently. So, of course, we live in a landscape that has co-evolved with fire. Many ecosystems are, are fire dependent or at least fire tolerant. But what's happening is a lot of key ecosystems and the ones I know you know, best are up in the mountains, the alpine ash, the mountain ash, the snow gum woodlands, the peatlands, they're getting fires more frequently. So a snow gum forest might get, you know, a, a fire every 50 years or 80 years, and now they're getting it every 12 years and then every 10 years. So that was the impetus for me to sign on as a volunteer firefighter, um, and that was watching an area that I knew burning for the third time in basically a decade. So in a very weird way, uh, you know, it's it's been good for my climate grief. Um, you're just one person amongst hundreds and sometimes among thousands, but really all we can do is what we can do. And, uh, yeah, I feel really uh, good to be involved in, in firefighting where I can. And you spoke there about climate grief, and I think that... Uh, it's hard not to kind of have that kind of reaction to the report itself, isn't it? Because as I said in the introduction that, you know, we really now, and I think, you know, the Morrison government in particular, are really falling really far behind on, you know, any kind of um, procedure forward to do our bid. And it's not just, you know, as Morrison and this government might say that we're a small nation, but, you know, it's what we export to India and China and and other states there you know we've heard again recently talk of building a um, nuclear of nuclear power station you know these kind of debates that you know we've been around hearing for, for many many years now and still no real progress forward what can we do and how do we combat this kind of climate grief that the report can give many of us yeah, so it is really hard and, and hard to process and hard to deal with. And especially when you think that the IPCC report, in a way, there's nothing new in it. Anyone that's been reading the science knows all that stuff anyway. And what we know about the IPCC process is it's inherently conservative because what happens is uh, it's a consensus document. So if there's anything everyone doesn't agree on, then it gets trimmed out. And there was something like 230 researchers who worked on the report. So imagine how hard it is to get consensus between 230 people. So a lot of the, you know, the, possibly the fringe stuff is, is pulled out and some of the more dire ones and some of the details that, you know, haven't really been cross-collaborated, uh, uh, affirmed as yet. Um, but the other thing is, it has a process where they close the books on the research and then review it, and then that results in the report, which is what this is, the, the sixth IPCC report. So it's already out of date because they're looking at research from several years ago. 
so knowing all that, it's just terrifying uh, to think what's coming. Um, it just reaffirmed yet again that we know that humans are driving global warming. We know that we've already warmed by more than one degree Celsius against background temperatures. We know that um, we're going to hit 1.5 degrees Celsius mid-century no matter what. We know that if we don't act now, we're going to at least go to three degrees. Um, and there's some really interesting data in there around sea level rise. And, um, you know, uh, we've had 20 centimetres of sea level rise since 1900 the rate of rise has, has tripled in the last decade. If we can hold the warming to two degrees Celsius, we're still locked into half a metre of, of sea level rise, uh, basically by the end of this century. If we go past um, the two degrees Celsius um, uh, level, then we might get two metres of warming. So whichever way you look at this, heat, impact on ecosystems, impact on humans, you know, we're, we're, we're not built to live in 50 degrees Celsius, you know, we die at those temperatures. If you look at agriculture, if you look at the mountains, if you look at the mangroves, if you look at the oceans, all the details are horrifying. And so the only sane response to a report like this is grief and alarm and fear and hopefully also a bit of anger and determination, anger at the leaders who fail us. And we know that the federal government has failed us comprehensively. We know that the federal government is controlled by climate deniers. We know they're closely aligned with the fossil fuel industry. We know we're in, they're in step with the Murdoch press that throw denial out at every you know, step um, of movement. We know that they're connected with the right-wing think tank. So anger is a really reasonable response but also so is hope and we have hope if we get organized because the ipcc report yet again said look we know how to get out of this we actually have the technology to do this the the movement on on renewables and efficiency and storage is astonishing you know and if you think back just a couple of decades when this was all developmental kind of technology in the testing phase it's all now proven it's all now good to go and it's now all cheaper than fossil fuel so there's hope, but to see that hope realised, we've got to have political activity and we've got to accept the scale of the opposition that we face. And that is, without being too you know, paranoid about it, basically the entire political system is still controlled by people who are either climate deniers uh, in their belief or climate deniers just because it suits their political purpose. So we have a huge uphill battle. But the key take-home message from IPCC is we have a chance to avoid catastrophic global warming, but only if we act now. And in terms of, you know, ecosystem collapse, I suppose this is a two-part comment question in regards to um, climate grief and then also how we find that hope. Um, the first part of the question is, within the AR6, the assessment report, um, it... I think a lot of that climate grief comes because it is global in its scale and it can be really overwhelming. Um, is it within the scope of the assessment report to look at ecosystem collapse? I know you can have just written report the loss of an icon on the snow gums. Um, and, you know, just as you spoke about with fire and the intricacies of the ecosystems in which we, we live here, and that when single species are removed or the interaction between those species are changed, like the follow-on effects that has, that has in the ecosystem. So I suppose, was it, given the broadness of the IPCC report, is it in the scope of the report to look at kind of the, the fine tuning of those ecosystems on a local level or in terms of hope, um, 
you know, what is the work that you're doing? So what's going on in terms so we can look at a local level at the ecosystem that we live in and sort of reconnect with those and how then to um, fit that into a picture of the report more broadly. Yes, and there is local detail in the report and the IPCC website is actually really interesting in that they've got a whole lot of interactive maps with the current report. So, you know, this has been decades of work. I think it was set up in 1988. So the IPCC has been around for a long while and I feel like they've done a really good job of trying to reach people through different mediums and particularly through social media and through infographics and through maps and, you know, like they've done a really good job of communicating what's going on. In the report, there is reference to the 2019-20 Australian fires and there's this whole subsection of climate science which is called attribution science. So when you have a disaster and think of, you know, where we are at present, Siberia, Turkey, Greece, Tunisia, you know, fires kicking off in British Columbia, Alaska, you know, unprecedented fires in Siberia, um, the flooding that happened in Western Europe, the flooding that happened in China and recently in Turkey, you know, the heat dome um, in North America, all these things, when these happen and we say, well, this is what climate change is about, there's actually a whole bunch of scientists that do the attribution work that actually look at the climate models and look at the data and say, well, what is the link? And we've known for a very long time, there's a very clear understanding of temperature and its impact on extreme weather. And we're now getting more and more detail on how that temperature, as it puts energy into the system, that does do things like influence fires. So the report does drill down to that level. There's some really interesting stuff in there on the fires that we experienced and what that means for us. And then if you kind of step back from IPCC, there's been a vast amount of local research into, you know, we know, for instance, probably 5 billion animals were killed in that, you know, the, the firestorms that happened through that summer. We know the scale of it. We know the number of buildings that were lost. We know all that detail. And, um, then there are the local NGOs and the you know local community groups that are doing the restoration work and, and tracking how biodiversity is coming back. So you have a really clear picture of what's going on. You've got to read that global science, but you've got to also look at the local level. And I, I feel like we are sustained by the ecosystems we live in. So it's always good to tune in to what it is that matters to you. If it's the beach, if it's the ocean, if it's the mountains, you know, if it's the woodlands, whatever you know it is that you like tune into that but then read the science as it goes up the chain to the global level and i think that's that kind of gives us a, a sense of handle on what's going on and then we start to to see how climate change is influencing that particular ecosystem that we either live in or the, you know the one that we love and escape to uh, when we can on our holidays i suppose it contextualizes what's you know especially if you're feeling connected mm -hmm. to a particular place that is able on a contextualizes what the changes that you might be experiencing or witnessing or being yeah. able to understand it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I'm not a coastal person. I've got a lot of mates that live on the coast and people talk about, you know, living at Inverloch or living at Apollo Bay and witnessing the storm surges that didn't used to happen. And that's tied into this 20 centimetre of sea level rise that we're experiencing. Not every single weather event is due to climate change, of course, not every fire, but overall the storm surges are getting worse, the flooding are getting worse, the heat waves are getting worse. So I think when you start to see it 
in those landscapes, it's kind of like the light bulbs going on over the head and you start to join the dots and you go, well, this is why, you know, in Haiti, they've got yet another tropical storm bearing down on them that will compound the horror of the earthquake that they just lived through, which is just, you know, a, a terrible natural disaster. So it's around really reading those signs and then looking at it through the lens of climate change and seeing that the, as those seasons get longer or worse or more intense, that's actually climate change in real time. You know, and I can remember it only seemed like a few years ago, we were still thinking about climate change that would happen either later in time or somewhere else you know maybe it was too blue going under or, or bangladesh we are living in it right now and you've um Straxon here and you've touched on some of the uh concerns that you have about a, a very detailed four thousand page report being kind of boiled down to two pages of suggested headlines or mm -hmm. advice for policymakers to take out of it and i suppose one of the responses uh to that um I guess, um, compromised release that you're describing with it having to be about consensus and certain things being shed off. One of the responses to that is that the, the, the sixth assessment report was supposed to be released in, in three parts across a number of months. And a group of scientists, Spanish scientists who are linked to Extinction Rebellion have actually broken ranks and released the third part with the working title of mitigation mm -hmm. early uh, to a Spanish uh, publication called CTEX. And, you know, one of the things I've long been sceptical on in the climate debate is placing the onus on individuals to mitigate climate change. But this leaked third part of the report seems to be implying that, you know, a relative few extremely wealthy individuals could make a real difference if they change their extravagant lifestyles. Things like 1% of people causing 50% of aviation emissions or SUVs and other large cars being the second biggest driver of climate change after power generation in the last decade, which is incredible. Do you think or, or how could behaviour change amongst the world's elite mitigate climate change? It actually could. Uh, and we have this dilemma where, you know, do you blame the individual or do you blame the structure? And kind of in, to a degree, you know, both are true. Um, if I just do the recycling, you know, and catch the bus, that's not going to save the planet. You know, we do have to look at the systemic crisis that we're in. We're all locked into systems where, well, I couldn't afford an electric vehicle even if I wanted to, you know, and sometimes I've got to drive because there's no bus or the trains aren't running. Do you know what I mean? Like we're, we're stuck in the systems of, of consumption that we are stuck in, and that's actually not our fault. We can do the best we can do in those systems, so recycle where we can and, you know, not drive, where, you know, where we can and all that sort of stuff, but we need the systemic change. And it's interesting that the 1% who have kind of been irrelevant to the conversation around climate change to a degree are actually coming into focus because of the obscene scale of the, you know, consumption in their personal lifestyles. You can just look at it and go, well, that is now having an impact on the climate. Um, so I think it's good to focus um, on the 1%. I think it's good to expect them to actually pay a, a decent share of taxes. I think all of us, you know, we like to say we're all in this together when we talk about COVID. It's certainly true when it comes to climate change. And it is appropriate that we all do our bit, you know, and that includes the billionaire class who have grown massively in recent decades.
We also need to look at the role of the corporations, and we know probably that figure that there's about 100 transnational corporations on the planet that are responsible for about 70% of the human-produced emissions. You know, that's the fossil fuel companies and the big mining companies. So we really need a clear analysis of this. It is what we can do in our own life, but in the political structures that we're stuck in. It is the leadership we should expect from the 1%. They shouldn't be building, you know, spaceships for space tourism. They should actually be putting their shoulder to the wheel and, you know, doing amazing things. I think of, you know, there are some famous, uh, very wealthy people who are philanthropic that have done things like buying up hundreds of thousands of hectares of primary forest in South America to protect it uh, in order to uh, preserve the biodiversity and provide uh, carbon sinks. But we also need to tackle the corporation. So we have to do those three things and we need to do them simultaneously. I think that's a great shift away from, you know, for quite a long time, there's been a debate around, you know, we all take shorter showers and, you know, that's the kind of individual change. And I think, you know, that it's actually, it's a collectivized response that a mass movement can put a demand on, you know, the billionaire class as well, I think. And, you know, that's the kind of, it's a kind of movement that, you know, maybe many of us might be used to as well is putting that pressure on. And, you know, those things are one in the same, aren't they? That the 1% and the corporations that, you know, those, those things are intertwined. And I wonder, you know, what is the kind of response that we can be looking at here as well? And obviously, you know, many people that we've spoken to on the show over the past year that were saying, well, what kind of activism can we do under COVID? You know, we're mm. under these restrictions. And I think that, you know, it, it it's still a challenge though. And I think it's still a conversation worth happening. And it is different for different uh, campaigns or different movements as well. You know, we're going to be coming up to an election at some point, you know, maybe um, early next year. What do you think, you know, what, what I guess, you know, what's the kind of things that FOE's doing that um, listeners can be a part of, that they can join? You know, how do you think the election is shaping? It seemed like it was going to be, climate was going to be a much bigger issue last time than it actually was. You know, we've got a Labour Party kind of divided uh, with some who, uh, still, you know, tied to the fossil fuel industry and, you know, a leader who won't kind of come forward with a definitive kind of policy. What what are you kind of forecasting that, you know, as climate activists, as, you know, I hope all listeners are climate activists, that we can be pushing and to try to get climate to be a part of the agenda for the election and and for the next little while going forward? I think a big part of this is thinking around how we have socially engaged activism. So by that, I mean, we know that in federal elections, who are the key actors from civil society? And it's likely to be trade unions. They will be the ones that will really get out there and do a lot of work on the streets. So how do we align working class values with climate action? I think there's a lot of work to be done there to engage with trade unions in the next few months to make sure we are on the one uh, page on that. We know that uh, climate change is the ultimate justice issue in every dimension. The rich have caused it, the poor will suffer from it, the lower income in nations like Australia have fewer opportunities and they have fewer reserves, frankly, if their house is destroyed in a storm, you know, can they afford to have insurance? Um, they have a day uh, compared to the 1% in Australia haven't contributed as much. Um, I noticed today there was an interesting conversation from the ex-resources minister, Matthew Canavan, who made a bit of a smart uh, comment about, oh, will mm. the 
Taliban sign on, you know, to the intergovernmental panel mm. agreement. And you have to look at that. And apart from just the insensitivity of looking at the horror of what's going on at present in Afghanistan in terms of, you know, the immediate loss of rights for women and minorities and, mm. you know, anyone that isn't a, you know, fundamentalist religion uh, person, just the, the, the mind-boggling arrogance of comparing the average Afghani with the average Australian and the figures are uh, the average Afghani produces 0.28 tonnes of carbon per person each year. We produce 17 tonnes per person per year. So we are radically over polluting. We need to accept the reality of that. The rich do need to go first. The rich have a historical carbon debt to the rest of the planet. We need to accept that and we need to be prepared to talk about that and bring that into the debate. So climate change isn't just this nice thing we might do to save the beaches. It's something that is hardwired with human rights and with historical responsibility and accepting the fact that we have the ability to move, we have the technology to move, we have the economic power to move in the way that Kiribati or Tuvalu does not. So I think what we really need to do is not have another kind of business as usual, you know, this time the election is about the climate kind of campaign. We need to have a climate campaign that is predicated on climate justice, which means making sure that no one is left behind. And that's people currently working in the coal sector. That's people that can't afford to insulate their homes. And that's people in Bangladesh that are being directly impacted by climate change. And, and just on that, actually, um, just last week, Sheikh Hasina, who is the Prime Minister of Bangladesh, um, released a statement in response to the IPCC report. Um, so on the 8th of July was the first Climate Vulnerable Finance Summit um, for climate vulnerable countries. And so that was, they came together to demand a delivery plan for um, the UN agreed the $500 billion for climate yeah. mitigation um, and also calling on as part of that and what this uh, statement is calling on a restructuring of the debts for climate vulnerable countries while, you know, recognising that with uh, huge amounts of, of debt and also working to mitigate and, and adapt to, to climate change, that these countries, it's, it's near impossible to do both. It is. Um, so also, you know, looking at the structurally ingrained issues in the economic systems yep. that we live within and how important they are to, to re-examine and to challenge internationally. Yes, indeed. And the debt owed by the Global South, or what we used to call the third world, is a construct that flowed from the colonialist venture, you know, which was the, that African nations and India, many nations were broken and then reformed to benefit the Western European countries. So the inherited debt needs to be seen in a political context, but so does the carbon debt, the historical carbon debt um, that has flowed through our use of resources. So some people love to blame China for the, uh, you know, the climate crisis, but China is producing so many greenhouse gases because they're producing so much stuff that we in the global north buy so it is all interconnected and we've got to shy away from really simplistic solutions and we need to understand that some nations have caused most of the problems australia is one of them a very high per capita uh, consumption uh, of resources and production of greenhouse gases some people have not generated much of the problem and yet they are on the front lines of it and so we need a really kind of sophisticated understanding that goes a little bit beyond the slogans that 
federal election campaigns tend to fall into and also trigger points so who can forget you know that the fear mongering around the taxation at the last federal election i think we really need a very sophisticated take and a lot of alliance building to make sure that the one percent in the federal election context can't divide people against each other so mm. that we think, oh well it's either climate or it's jobs you know it's either foreign mm its jobs we really need to understand that we do need to get together as communities and we need to work against the interests of the large corporations and the one percent well unfortunately cam that's um all we've got time for and there's obviously plenty more to discuss uh and i think you know the foe website um often has updates on campaigns that are going on on ways that you can get involved um you know many of our listeners and People at 3CR are already involved in some of those campaigns, but, you know, it's something that we should all be trying to work out a way that we can kind of do what Cam was talking about there to really politicise this, not just the election, but, you know, the country to be able to follow in the footsteps of the school students who are the ones that have been leading the way on climate action in Australia for quite a while now. Indeed. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Cam. Okay. See you Uh, later. So yeah, that was great. It's very exciting next week as well to be talking to an Indigenous land manager in far north Queensland. Oh. You know, it seems like the uh, perhaps some of the glaring uh, absences from this report are the myth of continuous growth and an yep. absence of First Nations voices. So that'll be a great uh, follow-up to this chat with Cam. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Good o. See you Thanks, all. Thanks, Cam. Good to see you again. Take yeah. care. told me not to go outside he told me i could get sick and die perhaps my lungs will collapse and god gave the germs their dominion you gotta wonder what he was thinking well that's that and this was supposed to be a summer banger but now it's just another bummer singer Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.